0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by the American writer Jonathan Ames, who's the author of several books, most recently, well not quite most recently, but um, most recently published in the UK, is <laughs> The Extra Man. And Jonathan's going to read to us for a moment or two from his book, and then we'll talk a bit about it.
1: Okay, well just to set up, the two little passages, one having to do with cockroaches one having to do with fleas so the book is about the friendship between two roommates a young writer who lives with an eccentric older playwright and they live in very close dirty quarters in Manhattan a very tiny apartment and the first passage I'm going to read is that Lewis the narrator has just cooked some spaghetti left it on a plate, left the kitchen momentarily to use the bathroom, came back to his spaghetti, and that's where we pick up. When I came back to the kitchen, there was a cockroach in the middle of my spaghetti. Oh, God, there's a cockroach on my food, I bellowed. What, said Henry, a cockroach on top of my spaghetti. You forgot the first rule of survival in this apartment, said Henry, without sympathy. Never leave food out. You didn't teach me that rule, I said. You should have learned it before coming here. Don't enlist in the military if you're not prepared to fight. I threw the pasta away and the cockroach, since I am unable to kill anything directly, even cockroaches, with which our apartment was infested, though none had ever been so brave as to mount my food. After dumping the pasta, I boiled some more water and started all over. Henry, from his couch, told me to wash my dish, and added that I should always wash my dishes before eating." He explained to me, teaching me some survival rules, after all, that our cockroaches were walking all over our plates while we slept, leaving behind an invisible trail of germs. So we were to wash our dishes before eating, as well as after. He came into the kitchen and rinsed a plate to demonstrate his special two-step method. First hot water to get rid of the cockroach germs, he said. Then cold to get rid of the lead from the hot. Otherwise you die. New York has lead in its hot water. That you might not have learned in New Jersey. Henry looked at me intently to make sure that I understood the lesson, and then said, hot for cockroach, cold for lead. Hot for cockroach, cold for lead. I got it, I said. Well, don't catch on too quickly. That's the problem with staff. Once they know what to do, they leave. It was a backhanded compliment, but it made me feel good. He didn't want me to leave. And then another passage very quickly and briefly. Henry somehow has developed fleas and so he's about to go to bed and he's sitting on his little couch bed and Lewis is beside him and Henry has just put down a list of to-do things. He put the list down on the coffee table next to his bed and picked up a bottle of spray cologne. He sprayed his ankles and the smell was overwhelmingly sweet. Why are you doing that, I asked. The fleas begin at the feet and move upward. "'I can only hope that the cologne will stop them like a moat, and they will drown. "'I apologize for having brought them into our lives. "'I noticed that there was a pair of boxer shorts stretched around his pillow. "'Why do you have underwear on your pillow?' I asked. "'The fleas, of course. They are directing my every move. "'I am forced to wash everything constantly. I have no dry pillowcases.' "'I had noticed that Henry had been doing a lot of laundry in the bathtub, but I didn't know why. "'He had kept his suspicions secret.' I guess he didn't want to falsely alarm me about the fleas until he had a professional opinion. What a life, Henry said, and he put in one of his earplugs. Fleas, automobile problems, taxes, can't make it to Florida. It's all too much. Something has to give, and my eye mask is still missing. My life is becoming unbearable. It's a veil of tears. He bandaged his Oxford shirt around his eyes, put in his other earplug, and seemed happier. He said to me, I am off to the land of Nod. Well, take solace in your dreams, I said. I didn't like to see him so beleaguered. Six dollars, he asked? No, solace. Take solace in your dreams, I said loudly, so he could hear me through his plugs. I was standing right near him. Dreams? I don't want dreams. I want oblivion. My dreams have no solace. I only have one dream. I'm always about to go on stage, and I don't know my lines, and the curtain is always rising. So those are two little passages about cockroaches and fleas from *The Extra Man*.
0: That's delightful, thank you. Um, can you? I mean, you'll have to cast your mind back maybe a little bit because this book was first published in the states twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, what was it that sort of drew you to the relationship between these characters? Where did you? kind of find the, find the jumping-off point for this novel?
1: Well, I was really struggling to write my second novel. My first book had been published in 1989 called I Pass Like Night, which is a, a line from The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And I, and three years had passed. I'd written a, two failed books, and I, I moved to New York to go back to school so I could get a teaching degree. And the writer Richard Price, sort of famous for clockers and some movies, Uh, was giving a three-day seminar, and he said, writers have to find something they're in love with and they have to hang out. He also had said that he had rushed out a third novel and that under the idea that you are a good dog when published and a bad dog when not published. So he'd rushed out a third novel, got terrible reviews, and he realized he'd forgot this principle. Which is that, Freedom Land? No, it must have been much earlier in the 80s. Um, And he said he'd rushed it out and that you should only write if you're in love with your subject. And I thought, all right, I've got to find something I'm in love with. And then I found this very cheap room, and I'd been living with this eccentric playwright for two years, uh, two two weeks, I should say. I ended up living with him for two years. And I thought, I'm in love with this man, not uh, romantically, but just as a character, as a kind of Don Quixote figure. And I just found him so funny and his life force so mad and crazy. And that the things he said were so aphoristic and like something out of Oscar Wilde to my American ear. And so I... He was a Brit. No, he was, he was American, but he spoke with a mid-Atlantic accent. And he just, you know, he just loved to pronounce and sort of hold forth all the time. And so I began this strange thing of just writing down, you know, 50% of what he said and then later kind of learned his rhythms and could make up the dialogue as I began to fictionalize the relationship. So all along winded a way to say that I fell in love with this man as a character and then also was really, well, rediscovering New York City, and I wanted to make New York City a character and was also quite obsessed and fascinated by Times Square of the early 90s, which was pre-Rudy Giuliani and and quite a... Still seedy. Very seedy. It it was blocks and blocks of just sex shops. I mean, it was really so strange that the center of New York was one huge kind of porn palace... But this was before the internet, and so people needed it somewhere. But it made for, like, a, a nasty center of the city.
0: Now, I mean, there's sort of another element that comes into this, though, and it seems to come into all of your books to some extent, is this, you know, you said the first, the first book took, took the title from The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. You know, you mm. mentioned Don Quixote. And, and mm. your protagonist in this, L- mm. Lewis, mm. he sort of moves to New York more or less, you know, because he's seen seen a picture of the Washington Square Arch on mm. the cover of a... Mm. Henry James novel mm. and there's a lot of there's a sort of sense that there's you know you're a reading kind of writer and these mm. books all sort of take off in some way from other books I mean obviously Wake Up Sir was a homage to P.G. Woodhouse mm. you know you did Straight Noir and uh, oh, You Were Never Already There and in this one you know he's sort of thinking of himself isn't he like a kind of 1890s or 1920s character and he's butting up against this very real New York of the 90s. Yeah,
1: well, the character very much lives in in his mind in a sort of fantasy life of what he imagines as a young gentleman out of the novels of the 19th and early 20th century. You know, Somerset Maugham, Evelyn Waugh, P.G. Woodhouse, Thomas Mann. The structure of The Extra Man was very much lifted from the structure of the Magic Mountain with titles for all the sections. In fact, there's a table, should be a table of contents, but for some reason in this uh, edition, the table of contents was left out. But in the Magic Mountain, there was a table of contents with all these crazy titles of all the little sections. So yeah, I'm, you know, I used to teach writing quite a lot. And there was the old Hemingway maxim, write what you know. But I used to tell my students, write the kind of books or write the kind of stories that you love to read. Because in a sense, the things you love, you're sort of studying them. And then maybe the pleasure that those books gave you, you can sort of now give to others or sort of channel those kinds of books. And I think most writers are book lovers. And I'm a book lover. And so when I'm writing a book, I'm very much responding to the the novels I've loved and trying to create the same effect. And so this book was very much a buildings roman, you know, the story of a young gentleman going to the city to find himself. So yeah, I love... This is a dash of um, that war novel, *Decline and Fall, isn't there? And he, he opens by
0: losing his career over <laughs> a sort of humiliating incident where he's... Borrows somebody's bra and straps it on over his tweed coat. <laughs> yes,
1: that's in my book, not in Decline and Fall. But I, you know, I haven't read Decline and Fall. But it's by my bed. It's been my, but been by my bed for a few years. You have a treat now. In store. Uh, but I, I have to, I have to crack it open. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. He be uh, the inciting incident is that he, he's a teacher in Princeton, New Jersey, and he come comes across in the teachers' lounge, which is empty except for himself a colleague's bra hanging out of her bag and it somehow the bra affixed itself to the cuff of his pants with its little hooks from the back strap and it's like a snake and he sees it and he has got he's very confused as to his identity. Part of him, as much as he wants to be a young gentleman, he wonders if he should be a beautiful young girl. But that ultimately is not his destiny. He imagined perhaps that he maybe there was a beautiful young girl inside him but it really... He wanted to find a beautiful girl outside himself to love, and not necessarily beautiful, but someone whom he could love. But yeah, he puts that bra on over his tweed jacket, and he's found looking at himself in the mirror, and the principal comes in, and he's sort of arrested. Not arrested, fired. <laughs> now, I won't be arrested for just slipping a bra on over a tweed coat. But I just started the prime of Miss Jean Brody. feels like a very prime of Miss Jean Brody kind of moment, you know, but... <laughs> I mean, one of the things for your British readers is that we are sort of reading you backwards in certain mm-hmm.
0: ways because you, you're being published out of order. And you're back, I mean, mm-hmm. so for us, you know, it looks like you're zigzagging back and forth in mm-hmm. some ways because, you know, we've got this, which, is, as you say, is The Magic Mountain. Mm-hmm. We've had the P.G. Woodhouse novel. We've had, mm-hmm. you know, You're Never Really There, which is really mm-hmm. kind of hard-boiled stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you see, looking back on the books you've written, a kind of continuation between them or... Do you see them as being like, I can do this genre, I'll do this genre, I can do this genre, I'll do this? I mean, is it just a sort of promiscuous jumping back and forth between genres for you? Well, yeah,
1: if one read my books in order, and I sort of looked at them one time this way, like the first one was I Passed Like Night, then The Extra Man, and then I published, I think, two essay collections because I used to write a column for a free newspaper in New York, and and I used myself as a character, sort of mimicking these columns that Charles Bukowski used to write for a free L.A. paper in the late 60s, early 70s. And then I did Wake Up Sir, and I could sort of... And all of the work was, at that time, autobiographical, or based somewhat in autobiography. I would use myself as a leaping-off point. So you could kind of see the progression... I could see the progression of the different phases of my life that I was writing about. And I think with the Woodhouse book, I I kind of came to the end of my obsession with the young gentleman that had begun with The Extra Man. The Extra Man and Wake Up Sir are very much paired novels thematically. And then after that, it was, I guess, maybe two more essay collections. Then I got into television, sort of... uh, by chance, and as a way to support myself, um, which is a whole other vein. So I, I don't, I don't know what the correct answer is. But, but there was
0: still a sort of autobiographical strand you know, as well. I mean, yeah. you call as you know, you'll probably be tired of answering <laughs> questions about <laughs> this. But the protagonist of your graphic novel, the alcoholic, was called <laughs> Jonathan A. <laughs> You've got you know a character called Jonathan Ames in your television show, <laughs> brought to death. You know, there's a sort <laughs> of sense in which you. Put yourself as a character, as a named character. Yeah. Why do you do that?
1: Yeah, I don't do it anymore. But I, at the time, I was playing a lot with that thing of that readers tend sometimes to be very curious about the lives of the author behind the book and, and want to read into it and creates a sort of fascination. I know, you know, for me... I wanted to know about the writers I read, even, you know, and try to read their books to read between the lines, let's say. But also, I had begun to blur it even more because I was writing all this nonfiction. I was also performing monologues on stage, telling ostensibly true stories from my life. And so I was playing more and more with using myself as a character which many writers have done i mean cervantes makes an appearance in don quixote philip roth had a character named philip roth it's it's something that has been done somerset mom and the razor's edge so i think there's a long tradition of this and i think i was i was working out my own issues with what was real not real and then sort of wanting to maybe engage the reader like with the graphic novel is this his life story but i say jonathan a which then gave me license to make a lot of things up and then with bored to death which was originally a long short story the reason why i then and that was the next thing i wrote after the alcoholic and i was like all right the character is just going to have my name was whenever i would write fiction like the extra man people would say oh you should just call that a memoir i'm like no no i've made up you know lot of the book, you know, and once you make up one thing, the whole thing really becomes a lie, let's say. And then, so my fiction, they always would say, oh, you should call it memoir. And then with my nonfiction essays, they would say, oh, you made that up. You know, come on, that's not true. So I decided to write a short story in the form of my essays called Bored to Death, where Jonathan Ames puts an ad on Craigslist posing as a private detective. This then later became the TV series. And so I wrote that story for Esquire. They ended up not running it. They were doing a fiction issue. They, you know, rejected it. And so I sent it to Dave Eggers at McSweeney's. And Eggers wrote me back, I love this. I'll publish it. Did this really happen? I thought, I've done it. Even Dave Eggers thinks that maybe it happened. I had so had mimicked the tone of my essays. Um, but with Bored to Death, I think my time using myself as a character sort of came to an end. And then even in Bored to Death, the Jonathan character, well, he... So he dressed like me, he sort of lived where I lived, but in many ways I was speaking a bit more through the Ted Danson character who was a bit older. Uh, His character's name was George Christopher and I saw that as a fusion of George Plimpton and Christopher Hitchens, two writers whom I had met and whose company I had enjoyed. But since Bored to Death, I then had another TV show "Blunt Talk," and there was no Jonathan character. There was Patrick Stewart, and some of my friends said, "Oh my God, you've got Patrick Stewart playing Jonathan Ames now, but because <laughs> um, he was saying some of the things that I had concerns about. And then I did, "You were never really here," which were then, you know, was in the third person. Yeah, not, that seemed a total departure. Yeah, that was a departure. I, I I wanted to write a piece of genre, I wanted to write a page Turner. And I wanted to write something that was non-comedic. Yet at the same time, the Joe character metaphorically somewhat represents the state of mind I was in when I wrote the book. So I think, I'm, and this probably is true for all artists, you know, we are drawing upon ourselves, how we see the world, how we feel, as well as, you know, looking into the lives of others. But so I think as I get older, I'm hopefully going to be less autobiographical. <laughs>
0: Is I mean you you mentioned Bukowski and one of the attractions of I think Bukowski's work is not always the literary quality mm-hmm. is that sense that you're getting something unmediated and very honest. Mm-hmm. If you're you know when you're mining yourself for work is is a sort of way to convey that idea of honesty even when you're making literary art mm-hmm. to as it were overshare because mm-hmm. you've you know been quite well known mm-hmm. for sharing. You know, all sorts of sexual humiliations, yeah. you know, alcoholic escapades, yeah. you know, drug issues. You know, you've, yeah. you've put a lot of stuff out there, whether it's made up or true. Does it mm-hmm. feel more true if it's more extreme?
1: Well, I think if maybe it does feel more true because, like, oh, my gosh, why would he be putting it out there if it hadn't happened or something like that? And And I, you know, I really don't write like that anymore, but I did so much of it at the turn of the century, which sounds fun to say now, because I had this column that I had to produce every two weeks. And I think, and it was a little bit pre-internet. So I would write it, it would appear in the newspaper, and then disappear a week later. The paper would be out for a week. So it was kind of safe. And then I put it in books, which was a little bit of a risk, but then if people took the time to read the books, they would see it in context and see that, you know, that it wasn't always just sharing too much information, that there was compassion and tenderness for others and I wasn't just exploiting myself and I I tried never to mock anyone but I look back on some of those essays now and I'm like okay that was too much information (laughs) you know and I wouldn't publish such things now on the internet because then they're there sort of forever and but so this was kind of a a pre-internet sort of life and uh or a pre-internet bit of writing and and, but Bukowski was an influence on those columns because you felt like yeah this was this guy's life or a version of it and you felt that you were in his dirty little one-bedroom house somewhere in Los Angeles as he drank beer and typed his poems and I don't know there was something like you got to be with him in a way that was very inviting
0: and You've said, you know, I did all that. Are you now sort of in a way trying to write yourself away from the persona of Jonathan Ames? Are you trying to kind of move into more third-person stuff, into more, you know, less stuff that's playing with that persona or, or playing with ideas of memoir, or autobiography, or mining yourself?
1: I think so. I'm a little bit at sea at the moment. I had started a sequel to You Were Never Really Here, but it stalled. I, so I started writing another third-person thriller, with a a woman protagonist. but So I'm not sure where I'm going with my prose. In TV and film writing, definitely not moving in an autobiographical direction at all. Uh, One funny thing with the whole notion of autobiography. So in the year 2000, I published my first collection, and it was called What's Not to Love, The Adventures of a Mildly Perverted Young Writer. And at the time, again mentioning Dave Eggers, he had just come out with... A heartbreaking work of staggering genius and I thought well I need something like that <laughs> so my brilliant idea was you know the adventures of a mildly perverted young writer well that was not at all approaching the cleverness of Eggers marketing because for the next 10 to even 20 years now 18 years after that book You too much information. You share quite a lot, and for like twenty years, I've been called pervert. You know, but I was the one that labeled myself that. So every article began, perverted writer Jonathan Ames. Jonathan Ames, the perverted writer. I was like, oh god, creating a brand. I can't shake it. But then, what was funny when bored to death came out, I suddenly a shift began where I was no longer perverted writer. Jonathan Ames would be like, the real Jonathan Ames showed up at you know, so-and-so, because now there was a fictional John the names running around on television. So I kind of was appreciated that shift from pervert to that I'm actually real. Well, that's encouraging. Mm. I, mean, do you, I don't even remember, certainly in the UK edition when they printed a new edition of a heartbreaking
0: work, of Staggering Genius, they put the flasher on it saying now 10% more staggering. Um, <laughs> you could do now 10% more perverted, maybe or 10% <laughs> more real. A lot of your stuff at least start with seemed to come out of you know or produce versions of a character who was kind of unsuccessful and you know struggling to be a writer and struggling mm-hmm. to get on in life and struggle yeah. and now you are suddenly pretty successful mm-hmm. you know you've had three hbo series you mm-hmm. well three seasons of one and right. another one and yeah. you've you know you were never really here was made into a film and mm-hmm. this one's been made into a film right. I mean, does that put a sort of dent in you as a writer? Does it, you know, cut you off from the sources of inspiration?
1: Yeah, you know. Well, now I fear of losing everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wonder if that is the next chapter. Was okay. He was broke and struggling until his mid forties. Somehow, out of desperation, ended up in TV. Had some s- success. I now live in Los Angeles and rent a nice little house with a swimming pool. After living in tiny apartments for you know 30 or more years in New York and then I'm like oh wait what if I lose it all now you know couldn't produce any more books and will that be the next chapter and I'll be back and but then there'll be great pathos in that he he didn't have it he had it and now he lost it and you know back into the hovels and writing from that you know point of view but yeah I I because I haven't use myself as a character, I haven't had to deal with the fact of my success just yet. And I and I, I don't know if it's a little bit like colorblindness, or if most people can identify with this, but I don't necessarily experience my success, or I, I'm still in a state of anxiety, like, maybe I can't write another book or make something happen. So, but... At the same time, I do know there's evidence. I've published books, movies have been made, and I eat very nicely, you know, and I can buy gifts for people. So there's definite indications and evidence that success has occurred. But if I do write from about myself again, I think there's a way to do it amusingly from the place of my kind of privilege and my sort of bourgeois privilege, I, I wrote a piece this past spring for New York Magazine er, around the release of "You Were Never Really Here," where in which I had to keep a diary of everything I ate, and so there was something about you know my privileged status and the choice of foods that I purchased and my softness—I describe myself as a soft citizen in another piece—that I think was a, a source of humor. So even even if I have you know, a little bit more in the bank and can eat more healthfully.
0: Did you find yourself kind of adjusting what you bought, thinking this is going to appear in a magazine? I have to... well, No I, caviar this week. Well,
1: <laughs> I, I, it made me very self-conscious of like, oh gosh, I do eat strangely because I, I buy a lot of... Prepared, I'm not a cook in by any means, so I buy a lot of prepared foods at this very nice market and then I arrange them on a plate as if I've put a meal together and then I might order strange things at restaurants, but it, it made me very self-conscious in an interesting way to see what I was ingesting every day.
0: And in terms of what you ingest, literarily, we know Bukowski was an influence. We've, mm. you know, you've written about Woodhouse. You said he was slightly mm. shy about that because, mm. you know, to see it, you know, nervous about an English audience reading right. Right. reading you doing Woodhouse. I mean, is there a sort of Anglophilia in your literary taste? I mean.
1: I I think so. I mean, more early on, just just so many English writers, and and you know, I love I love their sentences, the way they write, the maybe the worldview, the mentality. I, I just picked up a Muriel Spark. I want to go on a Muriel Spark kick. I was earlier today over by the BBC. And someone was talking about a short story contest, and I asked if they had read William Trevor, and I remember how much I had loved the short stories of William Trevor. So I think I've, I've, re- I, I think I've probably loved as many English writers as American writers, if not more. And uh, interestingly, two of my biggest influences at different times in my life, uh, P.G. Woodhouse and Raymond Chandler, both went to the same yes. public school... Somewhere. college prep. Yeah, so <laughs> they're a couple
0: of years apart. Unfortunately, so they wouldn't have known each other. Oh, really?
1: but they must have been very close, though, because they're yeah. similar in age. And I wonder if they you know, I, I don't know if anyone's done any research. Who was the, the teacher? I wonder if they both had like some great influential teacher that, and they're both right so beautifully. I mean, that's what I loved about the Jeeves and Wooster series. I I, I loved Bertie Wooster's voice, and the same thing with. Chandler. I love the voice of Philip Marlowe. I mean they're both
0: Chandler's also funny, isn't he? Sentence by sentence.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's it's actually quite hilarious when you read the you know, the Philip Marlowe books, which are and, and in his early short stories too, basically everything almost was about a Philip Marlowe like detective. He, he had different names and sort of earlier stories. But yeah, very shunts a lot
0: of those stories together as well. I mean yeah, the yeah, novels yeah. out of just saying, Oh, I've done these two short stories, all kind of
1: yeah, well, he would—he stole from himself quite a lot, and then did stitch work and change things. But yeah, it's sort of fun to sometimes read the original short story that then became like a big part of the novel, *The Lady in the Lake*, let's say. Yeah. But did crime, obviously,
0: you know, I mean, you you know, part of the MacGuffin for Bored to Death* is that the, hmm. you know, hero, the Jonathan Ames character, has read too much, hmm. too many crime novels and yeah. is kind of living this sort of fantasy and. You know, I don't think you could have written, you were never really here without being thoroughly immersed in kind of hardball stuff. Has that always been a sort of parallel track to your more literary reading? I mean, is that what you read for for fun?
1: It's what I read for fun. It, I guess it began before Bored to Death because I, I really quite loved Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and had read a little bit of Jim Thompson and maybe James M. Kane, but mostly I would reread everything by Chandler every few years and reread everything by Dashiell Hammett every few years. And then during the Bored to Death years, and Bored to Death was very much, as you said, the Jonathan Ames characters read too much Raymond Chandler such that he thinks he could be a private detective. And again, I was taking that directly from Don Quixote. Don Quixote read too many books of chivalry and thought he could be a knight, a knight errant. But then during the Bored to Death years, I really began a steady diet of reading almost purely just genre stuff and thrillers. And the writer I got most obsessed with is the writer Richard Stark, which was a pseudonym for the author Donald Westlake. And Westlake, kind of like a woodhouse, was incredibly prolific, wrote at least, maybe 100 novels under many pseudonyms. And one of the things he's best known for, for people out there listening, uh, was writing the screenplay for the film The Grifters. But he wrote many... Comedic- which was a Jim Thompson novel, Richard, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, so he had adapted that but he wrote many comedic crime novels, and then under the name Stark, though, wrote these 24 crime novels about a character named Parker, and they were written from the 60s into, I think, the earlier mid-90s with a a gap from the 70s into the 90s, but there's 24 of them, and some of them became movies. A Lee Marvin film in the late 60s, that's quite a cult classic called Payback, and, uh, no, Point Blank, and then a Mel Gibson movie in the 90s called Payback. And I loved these books. The writing was Dashiell Hammett-esque. It was almost like written with a rivet gun. And the plotting was great. And Parker was a really fascinating anti-hero. Even though he was a criminal, you rooted for him. Because he, he had great professional ethos. And he wasn't cruel to innocence. It was only anyone that might get in his way usually well, other Well that's
0: definitely present and you would never really hear isn't it I mean you've you've stripped that down to absolutely nothing but
1: yeah you know. well and so I wanted to write it in the style and I read those 24 books over and over again like kind of like a someone who's a crazy shut-in who only eats one kind of canned tuna fish or something I was only reading stark and then I would occasionally read other things Is
0: Stark a sort of distinctively different voice from Westlake's own I mean is he one of those people who kind of As I think Stephen King's dark half has that, you know, the writer who compartmentalises his dark stuff.
1: Yes, very much so. Westlake versus the uh, voice of Stark is very different, and I happen to prefer the voice of Stark. I, I have not really enjoyed... I Actually, I, I enjoyed some of the earlier Westlake novels in which maybe he hadn't divided himself yet. So there's some hard-boiled early Westlake novels, and, and I've read some of the comedic ones, which are good, but I really was addicted to the Stark, and I read somewhere something that, yeah, that when he wrote Stark... This was the version of himself who woke up angry in the morning, or you know, disgusted with the world. And when he wrote West, when he wrote his West, like maybe he woke up on the correct side of the bed and you know some, saw some hope for humanity. But uh, yeah, he's starkly different. Just yeah. to make a bad. Do you pun. think there's a? Is
0: there a distinct voice of Ames you can identify? I mean, do you have, a, or do you see yourself as somebody who can ventriloquize?
1: I I think the voice of my essays, even though I haven't written in that style. I I wrote two pieces this past year. There was the diary, uh, my food diary, and then I wrote a piece for the Los Angeles Review of Books. It was called uh, Yet Another Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name, and that was about my dog Fezzik, who I didn't name, but which is the name of the Andre the Giant character in Princess Bride. But I think there's a voice of my essays, which in my mind is almost like a British voice, but which would not sound British at all, but I think in my mind as I'm typing, I'm in my sort of speaking to myself, like, you know, the host of Masterpiece Theatre or something like that. But but that voice, but yeah, it's hard to say because so much of my stuff now has been written a long time ago. But I, I'm, and I can't know the sound of one's own voice, but I think there there's certainly themes and obsessions and, And maybe a worldview that has held throughout my work that might seem characteristic of me. Is it a comic worldview, would you say? I think ultimately it's a comic worldview, in that, you know, like I remember an early lecture about Shakespeare when I was in college that you know, his tragedies ended in death and they were very linear. Life comes to an end and all the tragedies ended with someone dying. Hamlet dies at the end. And that the comedies, as you like it, ended in marriage and procreation and the pathos of life goes on. And I think ultimately... With maybe the exception of you, were never really here, of course. But even that, maybe I wanted there to be.
0: Seems very funny to me in a kind of really <laughs> dark way.
1: <laughs> but I, for the most part, I've wanted to be optimistic about the human condition, and and that's why, you know, I didn't take a cruel point of view in my novels about the flaws of the characters. I I wanted maybe the readers to love them and to root for them, and the same thing with the TV shows. I wanted people to feel good at the end of the half hour that, okay, these characters might be confused and, and struggling, but they're trying to help each other and they might give each other a hard time once in a while, but they, they are trying to help each other. And we want to, we want to maybe be less confused in life and, and, and be able to love and be loved. So ultimately I, I think I, I'm rooting for people to get somewhere to, to, make the most of their time on the planet to wake up which is probably why i called it wake up sir wake up while you still have the chance don't sleepwalk through your whole life so i think in a sense that's comedic in that it's optimistic in the sense of shakespeare's plays ending in marriage you know life goes on
0: jonathan ames thank you very much for your time
1: thank you for listening You were listening to The Spectator's Books Podcast.
0: Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.